Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition Food Studies and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. It's a rainy, kind of gloomy sun- Sunday here in Brooklyn. Um, I'm joined by a ge- great guest today who's written a wonderful book called Stir. But to start off the segment, um, we're going to talk about uh, today's tidbit of food news, which comes to us from the world of food and technology. Last week, we saw the debut of the so-called Impossible Burger. And this was a, a highly sophisticated um, engineered burger um, that is created from all plant products. However, it bleeds a very realistic, uh, juicy, kind of medium rare, uh, bloody substance. (laughs) And uh, it is, um, yeah, it was created um, to hopefully sate uh, meat eaters with something that is um, more economically friendly. And it just debuted at Momofuku, and uh, it's inspiring lines around and around the block, as you might imagine. So I'm curious what, what folks think about um, Impossible Burger, and uh, it's, it's interesting because we have seen some hit vegan or like veggie burgers, um, superior superiority burger for one, but um, this one is definitely not trying to be vegetables at all. It is trying to fool you into thinking it is meat, and apparently it's doing a really good job. Um, who wants... David, do you do you want to try this burger? Well, so I have a question. When you were first talking about this, I thought maybe this was designed for vegetarians no. and who want like I guess some semblance of of a meat experience. Right. But so you it, you're saying it's for meat eaters? I think it's to convince even the most stalwart you know meat eaters. I actually got you know a Facebook uh, comment when I shared this uh, news from somebody who's like, I'm the farthest thing from a vegetarian, but this sounds great because I want to support more plant-based eating, but I would never do it ordinarily. <laughs> so, <laughs> see, I think that's kind of ridiculous. I, I mean, know. I I eat meat, I love meat, and uh, but I'll I'll eat vegetarian just incidentally, exactly. and it doesn't bother me. Like, if I have a vegetarian meal, I don't feel like something is missing. 
I mean, it's so funny because when you like step back and look at it, there's like a really simple answer to this problem of like <laughs> eating less meat, which is actually eating vegetables rather than um, this burger, which I, I apparently like that took eight million in research. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, right. that's why it's making such a splash right now. It's a, such a sensation. I, I do think that it is pretty cool um, that they decided to partner with Momofuku because if you're going to launch something that is somewhat maybe distasteful or strange <laughs> or odd, <laughs> that's a good way to do it. Because <laughs> no matter what it is, people will line up probably. Yeah, yeah, get some marketing behind you. Yeah, yeah, that's really, I think that's the crux of it, actually. Um, but we'll see. It could be it could be a positive um, step for for sure. Yeah, I don't know. Just eat vegetables, know. kids. Come on. That's another solution. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, we're talking with a guest today, and she is no stranger to seemingly impossible food feats herself. Uh, her new book is called Stir. It's just out in paperback this summer. It was also a smash hit, national bestseller. Um, and uh, it is a memoir called Stir, My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on the program. Jessica Fetchdor, how are you? Hi, Kathy. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. Um, your book is so beautiful. Um, but first, what are your thoughts on an Impossible Burger, <laughs> given what we know? You know, I'm curious to try it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious about how to make it. It's definitely not one thing that you can just whip up at home, but uh, yep. that's another story. Yeah, well, that's why I go to restaurants to eat the food that, yeah. I, uh, that I don't really feel like preparing at home. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good way to look at you know, restaurants, to try something exciting and sensational. Yeah. Um, so your, uh, your book is all about cooking your way back to consciousness. Um, it's a lovely, I, I think, a, a really, really interesting comment on the unique relationship that we can have with cooking, as you discovered through your experience. Um, so for, uh, would it be okay if I actually read a passage that I found just really, really amazing from your book? Sure, yes. Okay, so this happens right when you're recovering. Um, and you're going through this very lengthy recovery, um, you know, step by step, coming back to your physical abilities as well as mental abilities after a long disease, which we'll talk about later. But anyway, so you write, it seemed whenever I'd enter the kitchen, I'd discover a story, one that would nudge me over to something more real and more permanent about my life than illness. There were kinds of anecdotes and reflections about food that I had been shooting off to my family and friends in letters for years, the stuff of dinner table conversations and post-dinner phone calls with Amy about soups and salads and olive oil cakes gone wonderfully right and horribly wrong. Only now, it no, it no longer felt like small talk. The stories I remembered, the stories I made, let me know where, that there was a life beyond the narrow world of recovery. At their heart, there was the protective powers of kneading, salting, sifting, and stirring, because you can't be dead and do these things. There are no available statistics on how many people die each year while baking an apple pie, and I'd like to believe that it's because you can't. When you're cooking, you're alive. You've got no choice. To fry an egg is to operate with the perfect faith that you will sit down and eat it. To season it with salt and pepper is a statement that you will do so with pleasure, according to your taste. When you're sick and broken and sad and afraid, it feels good to think of a time when you weren't. It feels good to remember a life when you were hungry, when things tasted good, and to try in some small way, in, in one small room of your home, to reenact it. Wow. This is um, a very uh, brave story about recovery. Um, 
Jessica, do you want to take us back to the moment when uh, you were on that treadmill? And sure. Yeah, and then your life changed. Sure. So I was, um, I was 28 years old, newly married, thinking of starting a family. I was in the middle uh, of, of a PhD program studying literature. Um, I was at a conference, and I went for a run one morning, and an aneurysm ruptured in my brain. Yeah. Wow. Just all out of the, just out of the blue. Seemingly. Yep, exactly. No symptoms before. Right. And then you're close to death the next minute. Um, yes. But fortunately, you're saved. Um, but tell us, uh, you know, that, that really, um, that really took you out for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, so there was a surgery to repair the, the ruptured aneurysm, and there were complications that followed. Um, the, the aneurysm was was uh, fortunately clipped successfully, um, but I lost uh, my sense of smell, which ultimately came back. I lost mm-hmm. the vision in my left eye, which did not come back, and I developed an, uh, an infection in the tissue surrounding my brain that got into my skull, and the surgeons needed to go back in, remove a big chunk of my skull, so it was the left part of my forehead and the top uh, part of my, um, the left uh, top part of my head. Um, And they took that out and they threw it away, and um, I lived that way looking sort of like a bashed-in beach ball, um, wearing a hockey helmet to protect my brain for about a year until they uh, patched me back up again. Um, So throughout the recovery, both, both physically and then just, you know, when you face uh, your mortality at such a young age. There was mm-hmm. um, there were a lot of different components to the recovery in terms of feeling like I was myself again, feeling like I was comfortable in my own skin, in my own home, in my own life. It's it just takes so much courage, you know, to get through something so mind-bogglingly and no pun intended. Oh, geez, um, you know, um, um, yeah, tra- traumatic as that. And it's so funny because, you know, when I'm cooking now, I'm thinking about, you know, we don't think about such heavy things as, you know, being alive right now and making choices. But um, those were some of the earliest indicators that you that you have, you know, you have your own thinking. You, you, know, you kind of put a whole new meaning into the world, mindful, the, the word or term mindfulness in the kitchen. <laughs> It's yeah. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. Go on. Go ahead. Yeah. Go. Um, well, I was just going to say that you know, there's um, there's this thing that I that I wrote about in Stir as I was trying to figure out um, my own relationship to um, what trauma does to our own sense of mindfulness and and gratitude, um, and. You know, a lot of times when I was uh, sick and recovering, people would come over and they would um, start to, to, I don't know, complain about the, the traffic or uh, something that happened with their boss. And then they would immediately say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I really put my foot in my mouth. I can't believe I'm complaining to you mm-hmm. about these little things um, mm-hmm. when you are, you know, when, when you're going through this, uh, this truly, you know, uh, potentially deadly situation. And mm-hmm. um, the thing is that it was fine with me because, in fact, that's what I was trying to get back to, you know, like stubbing my toe and cursing or getting into an argument with my husband about something stupid. Um, that, that's, you know, these are the signs of a healthy life that we're, that we're okay. Um, there, I, I, I think that the, you know, the way that I think of it, um, when you suffer a t- trauma or loss, um, you are thrust into this 
uh, state of aggressive gratitude where mm-hmm. you can't, you know, you can't really be um, upset over spilling your milk if you're just so glad to be there to spill it. Uh, but what I learned is that that's really no way to live. Um, that the definition of gratitude for me, it's not that knee jerk. Oh, I, I better be grateful because I was almost dead. Um, r- real, true, lasting gratitude—the kind that I want to animate my life—is the kind that you know you 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 have those those annoyances, these little things that uh, that that drive you crazy. That of course, in the scheme of things, are are no big deal. But you know, you 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 are slowed down and you're irritated by whatever the normal things are that happen in life and you push back against that and you're still grateful. I, one um, passage that really uh, raised my eyebrow or a description really was when you wrote um, that you enjoyed the familiar discomfort of, of sort of crimping this pastry dough, I think it was, or mixing oh, it. The, yeah, um, by hand. It was the, uh, I know what you're talking about, yeah. the, um, the buttermilk biscuit. Right. Yes, I, I had this moment where, um, this is just one of the many ways that I felt the kitchen calling me back to myself. Um, I was in the kitchen, uh, one of the first times that I was able to really stand long enough to tackle uh, a, a favorite recipe. I was, you know, wearing my hockey helmet as I did everywhere mm-hmm. uh, and rubbing very cold butter into flour, right. as you do. Uh, to mm-hmm. get that nice uh, flaky consistency in, in biscuits. And as I was uh, rubbing that butter into flour, I felt a burning in my wrists. And my mm-hmm. first thought was, um, oh, you know, I, I, I know I know this, this feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had been, there, there during my recovery, as I was getting stronger, there would be uh, always this wall that I would hit where if, if I had pushed it just a little bit too hard that day, I would start to feel uh, achy and nauseous and dizzy and have to sit down. And I assumed that's what was happening. And then I paused and I realized, no, wait, didn't my wrists always burn yeah. when I rubbed cold butter into flour? Um, before I got sick, when I was, you know, as healthy as can be. And I realized that um, this was the first time that I was experiencing some kind of physical discomfort or mm-hmm. pain since I had been sick um, that was a sign not of illness, but of health and of normalcy. I think that's really wonderful to keep in mind. It, I, I just love that idea of the familiar frustration, <laughs> the familiar annoyance, you know, something like an old friend, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to think that, you know, if, you know, when when one moves away from New York City, perhaps it's like this familiar feeling of the, the you know, horrible subway commute, <laughs> those little things that you might miss um, mm-hmm. that reminds you of who you are and where you are and, and right. uh, how you feel. Um so, but you were you were quite a cook or a baker before your injury. Um, tell us a little bit about how that has changed. You know your attitude on cooking. Um, sure. Well, um, I mean, I was a. I was a home cook and yeah, baker. Hobbyist. I never mm-hmm. actually aspired to, um, to 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 do this professionally. Um, I think you know even before I I got sick and really kind of became, um, you know, the home became my uh, the place where I where I spent most of my mm-hmm. time. Um, even before that, I was a homebody. I am a homebody. I like being at home. Um, I like inviting people over and sharing uh, meals with with them. Um, I think that, uh, you know, while it's true that I always love to bake and to cook, I had never really paused to uh, think about why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I think a big difference now on the other side of writing this book, I wrote Stir because I had a question. Um, I wondered, you know, okay, this was this pretty big deal uh, life upheaval thing that happened to me. And uh, there, there's a, a line in Stir where, where I write about how, um, you know, we all, those of us who are just so, uh, you know, privileged to grow up with um, supportive uh, family and uh, to have opportunities in education, to go to college and all of this, we, I think we often are told to ask ourselves and we do ask ourselves, you know, what would you do if you could do anything and to um, then try to answer that question and, and uh, go forth. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a tricky thing because opportunity is, you know, and sending ourselves, uh, setting ourselves this task of what, what could I do, what would I do if I could do anything, anything, there's a, there's a lot, anything kind of mm-hmm. covers, um, you know, so much that it can that kind of send know. you in yeah. multiple directions at mm-hmm. once. Um, and what I realized is that the real question for me when I got sick was not what would you do if you could do anything, but what would you do if you could do nothing? Um, because for a while, I mean, even if I was able to take a shower on my own, I would have to choose, am I going to wash my hair today or wash my body? Because I didn't have the strength for both. And then, you know, do I, can, can, I, can I read for a few minutes or maybe um, have a phone call with a friend? So I really could do nothing. And then as soon as I could do something, um, that something needed to feel like everything. And uh, it, it was this uh, kind of visceral thing that I turned to to cooking, um, mostly baking, actually, in my kitchen. And um, I had this question really, you know, well, why? Why, when I could do nothing, was this the thing that I turned to? Um, and so I think that on the other side of writing Stir, having um, figured out some different ways to answer that question for myself, um, I carry that with me now when I, when I cook, this enhanced understanding of the links between uh, food and identity. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think that should everyone go through, I'm just kidding. Anyone who reads this book will certainly have, you know, an, a, a deeper understanding of what they why they cook and uh, perhaps will reflect on that as well. So thank you so much for sharing those revelations and making us all, um, you know, a little bit more thoughtful uh, in the process. Um, we're going to talk lots more um, after a quick little commercial break. So hang in there, Jessica. Sounds good, Kathy. Well, she's her own. She's her own female. She's her own female. That's why I like her. I like her a lot. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network, and we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MoFad Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing Flavor, Making It and Faking It. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami, and the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFad Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. All 
All right, we're back chatting more with Jessica Fetchtor, the author of Stir, My, Bro- My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home. Um, so just a little bit of catching up with you, Jessica, since the story ended and uh, since this book was first published in hardcover a year ago, um, where, so you obviously, um, congratulations, you have started a family and um, that's wonderful to hear. Um, however, uh, you are still pursuing your PhD, or are you still pursuing your PhD in Jewish literature at Harvard? Or um, has food, the, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Or I was just curious where food plays into your career right now. Sure. So, um, so I went on leave from the, from the dissertation writing in order to write STIR. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's kind of buzzing around now for me, you know, thoughts mm-hmm. about picking it back up uh, once again. Um, I will say that uh, the, the, the topic of my dissertation um, has shifted. I was uh, writing on um, uh, a monograph of a late 19th, early 20th century Polish uh, Yiddish writer. Um, and uh, as much as I loved that topic, uh, I realized that I um, was more interested in writing about food. Um, that's something that Stir uh, taught me. And uh, the, the new project uh, underway is about representations of uh, food in, um, in modern Jewish literature. Cool. Um, but aside from that, I mean, you know, you know, people think that the most life-altering thing that that happened to me was uh, this ruptured brain aneurysm and the recovery. But really, I think uh, the most life-altering thing was this discovery that uh, I I love writing and I love mm-hmm. it so much that mm-hmm. I um, I want to do it. You know, full time. I had the chance to try that out to to write full time, um, working on Stir, and I want to keep doing that. So yeah. um, I have a couple of other writing projects. Um, Unrelated to my my academic work, unrelated to food, um, that I'm uh, trying to get going right now. Yes, that is so fantastic to hear. Uh, congrats, Jessica. I mean, Thank I've you. I've come across lots of food memoirs or memoirs in general, and absolutely, you can write really, really well because this is like Thank one you. of the best. So that is so exciting, and um, it's it's really neat to hear how you've sort of merged your interests in the original dissertation um, in Jewish literature with um, a little bit of of a food focus. Um, So that's pretty cool. Um, Of course, you've also started, as you describe in the book, um, your blog, your food blog called Sweet Emmandine. And um, tell us a little bit about how you got started with with blogging. Um, And uh, I just love reading about how you you Googled, you know, food blog and you got really (laughs) overwhelmed. (laughs) And then you're like, well, okay, let's give this a try. I mean, how did you did you expect anything out of this or was it just more like for yourself? Was it cathartic? Um, sure. Yeah. Um, I certainly didn't expect anything out of it. I mean, I didn't know that one even blogged with that kind of expectation. This was this was 2009 where, I mean, I, I guess, you know, the whole bl- blog to book thing was happening, but I was so not a part of that world. I mean, I... Um, I had never even really, I had never read a blog. I don't think I'd ever said the word blog out loud. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I think some of it's a, it's a technology thing. I mean, I didn't even have a cell phone until 2008. Um, and I was, you know, I would like check my email once a day uh, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I did read a lot of food writing. I had a 
stack of uh, my favorite food writers on my bedside table. It was kind of my, you know, my guilty, not guilty, but my, my, my pleasure. I was going to say guilty pleasure, but there mm-hmm. was no guilt. Um, just the, the fun reading that I would do after reading the hundreds of pages of academic stuff um, mm-hmm. every day. Um, so I would have, you know, Calvin Trillin and... Um, and Ruth Reichel and Laurie Colwyn uh, on my nightstand, and you know, I, I think if I if I if I think back, I I I did think that it would be uh, fun perhaps one day if I could write about food, but it didn't occur to me that. I was really allowed to. Um, I was, you know, in my early and mid-20s, and I think I still was under the impression that uh, if you want to do something creative, if you want to if you want to write something, you have to have permission somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was allowed to write about Jewish literature because I was, tra- I was taking classes and someone was, an expert was training me and I was getting a degree. Um, but of course, you know, what I learned, what I've learned since then is that when you want to do a creative project, uh, you don't need permission. What you need to do is to start, you know, to begin. Um, So this was, I I guess, I had been in and out of the hospital for a couple of months uh, with these various complications and surgeries, and I found myself at home. And um, after the initial, uh, I mean, just the the, the part where you're just, your adrenaline's constantly pumping because you really don't know if you're going to be okay, uh, you know, minute to minute. Um, this next phase of recovery uh, begins where you're able to do a little bit more, but you can't really go back to your life. So in my case, I, I couldn't... I, couldn't study. Um, you you really uh, lose the constant, you lose the ability to concentrate for uh, oh. six to eight months. Wow. You know when you have brain trauma. Yeah. Um, but I was home, and you know I had I did I had had one realization, um, mm-hmm. which was that um, it's actually the name of a chapter in Stir. Uh, home is a verb. Uh-huh. It's not only where we live, but how. So, you know, it didn't matter that I walked into my home and it was the same four walls and, uh, you know, my my table and my, my books and my uh, mixer and my favorite yellow spatula. If I didn't have the strength, um, if I was too sick to engage with those things, I, I wasn't really home. Uh, instead, all of these things that had been so familiar, the tools of my life, um, they were like, uh, you know, they, they felt like artifacts from a previous life that were, mm-hmm. um, you know, anything but welcoming, wel- welcoming me home. In fact, making me feel uh, absent, even as I stood right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the blog came about because uh, my my dear friend Megan, who's uh, a character in in the book, one of the many heroes of, of the book, um, she came to visit, and I was I was crying to her about all of this. And she's the one who said, "Why don't you start a food blog um, and explain to me what what that means?" And gave me the names of some to go and check out. And um, Unlike my usual way of, uh, you know, mode of operation, which is to really kind of plan and plan and overthink and consult with a million people before I start a new project, I just, um, I just opened up a, you know, a, uh, one of, a white text box on Blogger and mm-hmm. typed my first entry and. Um, as my husband uh, Ellie puts it, walked out into uh, the living room looking as though I, I felt uh, as though I had just invented the internet. <laughs> I, you just did it, as you said. You just I started just did it. it. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's an amazing, uh, you know, courageous uh, thing to do. And I think that um, you're absolutely right. You know, when you're doing something creative, it um, it just takes a notion or a simple idea that you share. Um, 
how was it sharing with like a wider audience? Because it sounds like you you're fond of you know sharing thoughts and ruminations about food with friends and family. But um, all of a sudden, with the blog, you have a public audience. Um, did that help to know that um, you know there was there was more of a sympathetic sympathetic audience um, listening? Well, I'll start by saying that I didn't realize, I mean, I knew that it was public, that anybody could yeah. go to it, but after Googling food blog and seeing how many, you know, were out there, um, it didn't occur to me that really anybody would, would find it or read it. Um, I, uh, I sent out an email to my friends and family when I started uh, the blog, Sweet Almond Dean, and I said, this is my way of saying that I'm ready to talk about something else now. Mm. Um, and yeah. it was very much intended at first for that, for that close circle. Um, and it was, uh, I, I haven't said yet, so I, I declared it an aneurysm-free zone. I did not mention my illness on the blog for a good, um, I'd say, nine months. Um, and you know, people have asked me, and didn't that feel weird, uh, especially as other people started to find the blog and, and come, um, d- didn't it feel strange, like, when you're writing about your home, that the subject uh, matter is very intimate, and not to mention, um, as you're talking about your daily rituals, uh, the fact that you are missing part of your head, and you're, I mean, at first I could only write a couple of sentences looking at the screen at a time, and then I would have to go and lie down. Um, And in fact, it was quite the opposite. Um, I think I felt my most, like I was my most authentic, my realest, um, truest self when I was blogging, because unlike... um, any other time when I was face-to-face with people um, or talking with people who knew my story, you know, friends and family, they would, it was the elephant in the room always. Um, and, you know, they would, they would ask me, you know, with all of the love in the world, you know, how are you and, and why don't you sit down and let me get this for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that but didn't happen when yeah. I was on the blog mm-hmm. because I was talking about what I wanted to talk about. And people were, you know, we were talking about roasting chickpeas right. and sauteing cabbage and, and baking. Biscuits, Um, and that just felt—it felt like all of the things that were temporary um, about my illness could could just you know strip away, and I could just be me. Yes, and and you're connecting with people on this level of um, you know sharing thoughts about food, and and people are relating to that. And I think there's uh, yeah, that's definitely a a comforting feeling. you know, in one uh, section, you talk about reading MFK Fisher and sort of like nodding as you're reading, like, yes, I totally know what you mean, MFK Fisher. Um, so I can definitely, I felt this way in uh, reading your book and hearing you just talk right now as a someone who has been blogging for, um, it looks like 10 years now this year. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> so you think, you know, when you're writing these like silly or random, you know, f- uh, you know, just whatever food thoughts that you have that um, they're, they're, you know, they're yours, but they're actually, you know, people relate and they, um, they take something, um, they, they find something of themselves in it too. So um, it seems to have very much, your blog seems to have touched a lot of people in its own, just, just on the level of food in itself. So that's pretty cool. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, it looks like that's about all the time we have for us today. Um, but I really, really appreciate your, your sharing your inspiring story and um, telling us uh, how, how things are going these days. Well, thanks for having me, Kathy. I, I, I love your show, and uh, it's been so much fun speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much, Jessica. And we look forward to your other writing about food. We'll definitely stay tuned. 
And um, re- uh, listeners can all follow Jessica at Sweet Amandine at Twitter and also check out the blog SweetAmandine.com. And Andy, I'm actually um, Jessica oh. Fector on Twitter. Oh, you and, are? Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I made that switch a few weeks ago. Okay, gotcha. Jessica Fector at Twitter. <laughs> we'll, we'll be uh, tweeting about it this week, too. So. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. Have a great week, Jessica. Thank you. You, too. And thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.